0: Hi, Venters. Welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In today's episode, I'm checking in with freelance journalist Kat May Romero. I came across Kat through a campaign she's involved in called Formula for Change. It was initially Kat's idea and now it is being led by the Metro in partnership with Charity Feed UK. They are calling on the UK government to urgently review their infant formula legislation and give retailers the green light to accept loyalty points, grocery vouchers provided by food banks and local authorities and store gift cards as payment for infant formula. This is an issue which doesn't just affect mothers but also fathers too in how they support their partners and feed their babies themselves if they are the primary carer, so it's something I wanted to cover on the podcast. In this episode we discuss Kat's wider journalism journey from working in celebrity journalism to now working freelance after she finished her maternity leave, we also talk about work life balance, class and the competitive nature of celebrity journalism she experienced in her early to mid 20s. We then do a deep dive into the Formula for Change campaign and all of the issues it includes through a mental health lens. For Kat's mental health, we discuss how the campaign was driven by her own mental health difficulties in trying to breastfeed her baby when he was born, postnatal depression and all of the stigmas associated with that for women in disclosing it publicly and even privately to friends and family. We also discuss how medication helped her depression as well as her experience of anxiety throughout her life. This is the first time I've covered postnatal depression on the podcast, and it is still one of the most stigmatized mental health issues I've come across for women in 2023, despite all of the work that's been done across the board to destigmatize women's mental health. So, this is how my check in with Kat May Romero went. <laughs> Kat, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you very much for taking the time to let me check in with you. When I came across your brilliant formula for change campaign you are helping to lead on, I won't say you are completely leading on, I was very keen to have you on the pod to talk about it. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, no problem at all. We've got a lot to talk about, including the Mm. campaign and outside of it. So, without further delay, are you ready to start the show?
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: Let's start your pod by talking about your journalism journey, Kat. So, take me back to the beginning, if you can. What inspired you to get into it? Where did your love for writing or reporting or storytelling or presenting come from? And the journey to where you are today.
1: Yeah, so I always loved writing, I always loved English, but I was one of those people in school that I was like terrible at literature and good at language. And I was like, uh, I think in my GCSEs, I got an A in language and then a C in literature. And then in my A-level, I had to do literature and language together. I couldn't do language on its own. And I got a C. But like someday I think if I'm like ever going to be like a successful author, I'll do that tweet on A-level results day and be like, I only got a C. I really loved writing, but I was a little bit discouraged by the academic side. I never wanted to like read English at university because I didn't do well in it. I didn't get good enough A-levels to go to like a proper brick University and read English. But I loved writing. So I had a slightly failed time at University of Western England. I went there to do psychology because I'd actually loved that A level I'd done and quickly realized that it was not for me. I was never going to be a psychologist and as much as I loved the social life, I was just going to spend 3 years drinking and not really doing anything and showing anything for it. So I had a couple of friends that were at Solent in Southampton and I should say during my time at University of Western England I joined the newspaper. And that kind of sparked the idea of journalism, which I'd not really thought about as a career. And I knew there was a good journalism course at Solent that one of my friends was already on in her second year. And I just dropped out of UE, asked my mum and dad if they would go for a tour of the university and pretty much sort of didn't really put a lot of thought into it. Just I like the sound of journalism. Southampton's pretty close to London where I lived I had a couple of friends already at the university. So I felt like if all else fails and I don't make any friends, at least I've got friends there already. And that was it. Signed up to start in September 2008. And that was when I started my journalism journey, I suppose. Yeah.
0: As you said, Samson Solent is not a Russell Group university. It's an ex-polytechnic. So how did your degree mm-hmm. give you the chance to break into the industry, which, as we'll discuss in a bit, is not only hyper-competitive and disproportionately made up of privately educated people, but also Russell Group University graduates as well.
1: Yeah, to be honest with you, I used to kind of like relish the fact that Solent would always appear in like the bottom 20 universities because I'd never gone to like a great school. I didn't really care about any of that. Like I just loved the fact that my university was very practically minded. So all of my lecturers were journalists or former journalists and they would all had worked in the field at either a regional or a national level and there was a huge emphasis on work experience actually i forget how much now but you had to have completed a certain amount of work experience to actually graduate so it was not only like a suggestion it was a requirement and actually that was for me the whole reason i got into journalism because i had some great lecturers who just really like lit that fire and said like you have to go and get work experience I would say, even though I came from like really average sort of working class background, but I didn't go, I wasn't privately educated. One of my privileges that I acknowledge is that my mum and dad lived in suburban London. So on holidays, I could go home and on like Christmas break, for example, I could get two weeks work experience. If I was lucky mm. enough to get two weeks, I didn't have to worry about where I was going to stay or anything like that. So I just, from the end of my first year, just would have this like little Excel spreadsheet And I would find editors, everything, and I would just email them manically. I was just like that crazed journalism student trying to get work experience to the point I would feel like every summer holiday, every Christmas break, every Easter break, i would be doing work experience just to like get my foot in the door really, because I didn't know anyone. I didn't have connections. So I figured I'm going to have to make them myself just by going in there and proving that I'm ambitious and eager. I would say that to any journalism student now like it's not enough to get a degree. I think it might be moving towards a different place now but certainly when I started university in 2008 I think it was at a time when everyone was doing degrees and there was like so many graduates. So you really had to separate yourself from the rest of the bunch and unfortunately a journalism degree on its own just really wasn't enough. You had to sort of have that body of work already and it was tough because you know you're not getting paid and I would do my summer job for pay like I would work in a bar or work in wherever in the day in the evening and then also do my work experience alongside it so it's pretty exhausting but invaluable for getting those contacts that I wouldn't have got any other way.
0: The route you found into journalism was celebrity journalism or celebrity Mm -hmm. style or targeted journalism and you Mm -hmm. worked first at a place called More magazine which is lesser known I guess to the listeners and now no longer exists before you moved to the more well-known to the listeners closer magazine. So what did you learn during this period?
1: You know when we were talking initially and I said about More I actually completely forgot about something that I'd done just prior to that So actually, when I left university in the summer of 2008, I started working for the Mail on Sunday. I don't know why this completely, I forgot this. But essentially, through my work experience, I'd met someone, I'd met a journalist called Zoe Griffin, who I stayed in contact with. I started writing for free for her in my third year. She had a blog at the time, and I would write for it. And anyway, long story short, when I graduated, she put some calls out. And Katie Nichol, who is a royal correspondent and author, had a column in the Mail on Sunday at the time. I was looking for what she called a diary girl for the summer. And essentially someone who would just go to events and try and get lines, try and get stories. And yeah, that was it. Like I left uni and within a month I was working at the Mail on Sunday. And I did that for about three months before I moved on to more. So that was kind of actually my first crash course course into journalism and celebrity journalism and actually really society journalism because it was a lot of events where what they call like the car sheet so you'll get like a pictures and names of people who are meant to attend so you're kind of familiar with the guest list a lot of them were like very high society people that I never heard of because I didn't read like Tatler and I wasn't in that circle at all. So that was my first experience of journalism. And that was, to this day, the most I've ever felt very aware of my background. I was working with a lot of private educated people. And I was also going to events with a lot of private educated people and people whose social circles were very different to mine. But as I moved into different sectors of journalism, it was a lot more balanced
0: You then moved to the Daily Express, where you worked for their travel and lifestyle section before going freelance for the first time, if I'm right in saying. So why did you make this move and then go back to a staff writer role before COVID-19 struck?
1: Well, so I went to Express in 2015 because I was just sort of solely working in print journalism and it was becoming... More evident that I was sinking myself, <laughs> like sinking ship with print journalism, unfortunately, because I think print journalism is filled with so much talent, but digital journalism was becoming sort of this ever growing beast. And essentially, I was 27, I think, years old, and I was in danger of becoming, you know, I was losing the skills that actually these younger journalists that were graduating at 21, 22 had because they'd done their degrees. And digital journalism for them was this huge thing, and it, I went to university when digital journalism was really in its infancy, so I didn't even really have it as a major subject area. So I moved to Express. I moved there to do the digital journalism, but I was offered a like a freelance cover role at Now Magazine, which is another magazine that has since stopped nothing to do with me and I was offered like <laughs> just to get the new- in there <laughs> yeah I know it seems like I'm sort of like the um <laughs> the recurring theme but it's not I was offered the news editor role and I suppose I was kind of drawn to like the title and then from now I was freelancing at other places and it's slightly complicated like going back and forth but essentially before COVID-19 I went to OK Magazine as the assistant editor so I was uh higher-up editor at OK, and I loved the title, and it was a great team to work with. It was so much fun. And then about four months into being there, we got plunged into the pandemic, so it was a slightly... Yeah, my time there was somewhat obscured by, like, the pandemic and working from home and a lot of merging of titles and, unfortunately, redundancies for some people. So that was a bit of a strange time to be working there.
0: You also had a baby during the COVID-19 period.
1: Well, he, yeah, I mean, he Is was. that right? All oh,
0: right.
1: No, no, he was born in October 2021. So we were coming out of it, but that was the. Um, I mean, that's
0: still that's still during COVID. Let's be real. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I fell pregnant during lockdown, so it was like one of those. <laughs> hey, you had to get
0: something done. Babies,
1: yeah. <laughs> I I always say to my partner, like, at least you know, there's absolutely no way that it could be anyone else's baby. I mean, he's his twin, but also because I wasn't going anywhere, so like, there was nowhere else it could be yeah, I had a baby in 2021. So that was pretty mad as well.
0: So when you decided to go freelance again, was the decision more about work life balance as opposed to say creative freedom or anything that comes with, you know, the other side of Going freelance basically?
1: It was kind of both really do you Mm. know what I would say being a woman and especially being a mum I think a lot of women in any creative industry and probably in every industry are made to feel as though motherhood is going to be like the biggest defining chapter of their career because ultimately after you have a baby everything is compromised so you know I was always kind of I felt the pressure to be exactly where I wanted to be in my career before I stepped away to have a child because I did see it as stepping away and I did see it as taking my foot off the the, the gas and being like, how am I ever going to have that same drive and passion and be able to work 12-hour days and be able to do weekends or evenings and be on call when I have a child to look after and so I better be where I want to be or I better be high up because then they can't get rid of me or whatever. And actually, when I had my son, I had this urge to have well a better work life balance i didn't want to have to log into my laptop at 8:30 and sign off at 6:30 i didn't want to have to be constantly on my work emails i wanted to do things that were more creative and i really wanted to do more writing cuz journalism people don't realize a lot of times when you're writing for Publications, you're really adapting to a house style. So you're not necessarily showing a lot of yourself and your personality. But also, something that really surprised me after having my son was that I really wanted to still achieve. Like, I wanted to show him that after I had him, I actually, like, maybe hit the best career milestones of my life. It wasn't just pre baby that I was, oh, you know, you should have seen me before I had a baby. I was here, there, and everywhere. And then suddenly I'm just a mum. I actually felt more ambitious because I was like, I don't just want to be a mum. I love being a mum, but I don't want my career to now be secondary. Like it is secondary, but do you know what I mean? It's like, I still have ambition. I still have goals. And that wasn't something I was expecting to feel after I had my son, to be honest with you, but I did. I wanted to still be achieving. And I still felt like the best in my career was to come. And I didn't think it was going to come from a staff job at that point.
0: You mentioned work-life balance there. And this is the first issue in the The wider industry you wanted to discuss so specifically Mm. when it came to your earlier career in celebrity journalism and as you said there Mm. is a requirement to be at a lot of these parties red carpets all the traditionally glamorous stuff that I'm sure a lot of young journalists aspire to work on or even die to work on who knows however past the glamour
1: Mm. what is
0: the reality of doing that on a regular basis when you have to work them not just be there
1: yeah, it's so different. I mean, I think that it's different now. I definitely, when I started as a journalist, people didn't really talk about mental health. And so I was actually really, uh, you know, it's, it's lovely now when I left my last um, full-time role that people could say to their bosses, like, I'm really burnt out and I, I need a break. And that was really common and acceptable to say, I'm too tired, I don't want to go to this event tonight. When I started, it was just a requirement that you were out every night and also in the office every day. And yeah, like, don't get me wrong, I look back now with fond memories of a lot of it, because it was great. Like, you were 23, I was 23 years old, and I could go to any event in London if I wanted to, you know, because you could just call up from the magazine and say, can I get a plus one to this drinks event in Soho, and just go and take your mate and just get drunk on champagne that was free. Like, it was mental, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. But I think there's a, there's a big difference between just going to an event and actually having to work an event. And that's what, as a showbiz journalist, you know, your whole thing is that you're going there to try and get interviews from people. So you're going to try and have to corner someone and see if you can get some exclusive quotes. Or you're trying to witness something happening, maybe get like, try and see if a, a celebrity or something is going to occur. So like I had some friends that were like lifestyle journalists. They would go to these events just for fun and good, good for them. But it was very different for me, because there was also the pressure of, say, the next day, there's this huge scandal that's occurred at the event that you're at in the paper. You know, your editor is going to be like, why the hell weren't you there? Why didn't you see this happen? Why didn't you get any pictures? Why didn't you get any quotes? So, yeah, it's like there's a free bar and some lovely canapes, and that's lovely. But there is that constant pressure. And I felt it, but I have friends who are at bigger tabloid publications, and it was Really hard on them, and there's lots of perks of the job, but yeah, it was knackering. And even at 23, you feel like <laughs> you feel like an old woman because you're doing 80 hour weeks, you know, trying to get these lines across. So, that for me was like the biggest challenge, really, having that work life balance. I suppose back then at 23, it didn't really matter so much. I didn't have a family at that point, I was single. And there were situations when I could take friends to events because I would get extra names on the guest list. And so I would kind of like bring them along, do my little journalism bit on the red carpet and stuff, and then try and join them for a drink inside. But yeah, it's not all the glitz and glamour. I think the biggest example this I would say is a red carpet. I think a lot of us that are out in the industry, see like people from E! News on the red carpet with a microphone. And it's all very like, what are you wearing in terms of, but actually most journalists you'll be in this thing called a press pen and it is Mm -hmm. essentially a cage and you're just kind of shoved in to these bars trying like, you know, there's like a sea of dictaphones being held out at this one poor celebrity's face. And it's, yeah, it's tough. It's tiring and it's stressful. But yeah, there are perks as well as that, but it is tough. It's a tough balance to find. It definitely is something that most journalists, once they get to their late 20s, or 30s are happy to kind of pass over to the younger journalists and say they want more of like an editor role or something where they're a bit more office-based because it's just knackering.
0: That kind of event doesn't always engender camaraderie between all of you as young journalists, does it?
1: No, I was really fortunate actually I had some really good friends that were young journalists at the time I was a young journalist and we sort of stuck together. We had each other's backs. Like I had some journalists that I trusted really well. You know, they could hear a story that I'd got and they wouldn't take it. They knew it was mine and they'd be like, that's fair dues and, and vice versa. But yeah, of course, like you're in competition with each other and you're only as good as like, you know, the content you deliver. So you can be the nicest person, but if you're not getting these lines on the red carpet, you're not asking the right questions. It takes a lot of balls to be that kind of journalist because not everyone is thrilled to see you. <laughs> you go to an event mm. and you have to corner someone at a party. And there's hardly any publications I think celebrities like the sound of. You know, most magazines or newspapers, it's sort of like a swear word to some celebrities. And that's perhaps understandable given some of the content. But you're kind of going up, having to introduce yourself, knowing that sometimes they're just going to tell you to, you know, go away. And sometimes they're going to just give you really, like, short answers. And, yeah, you have to basically have the balls to be not liked all the time at these parties. You know, they're not thrilled for you to approach them but unfortunately you have to at least to say that you have done so yeah it was (laughs) had to develop a thick skin
0: before we move on to formula for change the last Mm. issue you want to talk about is class and you've mentioned a little bit already in the fact that you come from a working class background so Mm. does it firstly make you more proud than you would have been if you'd come from a more privileged background that you made it in the journalism industry if you even feel that because a lot of journalists I know who have made it don't feel like they've made it but also what needs to change to help more journalists like yourself get in
1: first of all I have to say like I do consider myself working class I was actually having a conversation with one of my friends one of my best friends who's also a journalist of the day who grew up on a council estate and she was like I'm working class I think class is very hard to distinguish isn't it nowadays my dad's left school at 15 and worked in a factory and when he was retired he was a postman and my mum was like and worked as a secretary kind of PA jobs like, I, I definitely wouldn't consider myself to be from an uh, you know an upper middle class affluent background but yeah I did have obviously like a lot of privilege in other areas I suppose I felt comfortable and we had a house as you know it wasn't big or anything yeah like I do feel proud about what I've achieved because I didn't have any doors open for me and I will mm. always say that I didn't I was so ambitious as a student, I opened every door for myself because I hounded <laughs> magazines and newspapers to give me work experience to the point they probably just wanted my emails to stop. So they were like, yes, come in at Christmas, just leave us alone. <laughs> but, um, and I do feel like that was me and I was a hard worker and that work ethic was instilled in me from my parents. You know, I, I, I would give everything, 110% to every internship or every work experience job I wanted to be asked back and I was always asked back because I just had that attitude that my parents always given me of like be grateful to be there be grateful for every opportunity you're not going to just get given something so whatever task they give you even if that's sorting all the hangers out in their fashion cupboard which I did have to do or trying to find the back of someone's earring that had fallen off in a meeting which I did have to do I would tackle that as if they'd given me like a front page splash and I was like yes I can do it so I do feel really proud as for what has to change I mean to be honest with you I think I worked with a lot of people that have come from similar backgrounds to me too but where I think the gap is and I'm not the best person to speak to is journalism is hugely white it is hugely white and I've had friends in the industry who are from sort of Caribbean backgrounds, Asian backgrounds, and they're not seeing people represented in the industry at all. But they're also not seeing those stories told either. And I think that it has to go further than companies just kind of looking to diversify their hiring and actually trying to figure out why certain sectors of young people aren't able to get into the industry that well number one a lot of people can't do work experience for free you know and like it's hard to give two weeks of your time for free to go and work at a company and I know I said that I did that and you know I was determined to do that but then there were summer holidays where I would do that alongside a full-time summer job so it's Mm -hmm. knackering you know not everyone can do that not everyone lives in London and a large portion of our media is based here so we have to be looking in schools and going further back and seeing how we can shape these younger people, their career journeys, what they want to be doing. Because yeah, as I said, like, I know I've worked with bosses that say, you know, I want to hire someone from a different background, but that's assuming that that person has gotten to that stage where they're actually applying for a journalism job. So I think we have to make journalism as a whole in the creative industry something that is appealing and open and available to a wide section of people from school you know so they're kind of ambitious and knowing what they're working towards and just create more opportunities for work experience maybe there could be writing opportunities that these young people can do from home so they're not having to be in the office and travel and give their time for free so I there's so much that could be done and I'm sure there'll be people who will think you know come on like You've got where you've got. You didn't have the hardest of beginnings. I definitely didn't have the hardest of beginnings. I've never paint myself that way. So there's definitely like I think there needs to be more done earlier on. And I feel like my stories are told a lot. And I I see a lot of women like myself in journalism. Even though I'm not privately educated, I still see a lot of women like me. There's lots of stories that aren't being told. There's lots of people that aren't being represented. And I think that's the big issue.
0: Let's talk about the Formula for Change campaign now. So as I said in the intro, Mm -hmm. the aim is to pressure the UK government to give (coughs) retailers the green light to accept loyalty points, grocery vouchers and store gift cards as payment for Infant Formula. So first of all, how did you come up with the idea for the campaign and pitch it to the Metro? And why isn't Baby Formula already accepted on these discount systems?
1: So I came up with the idea, I formally fed my son, and I realised this policy was a thing when I tried to use Next Points to buy it and couldn't. So it was one of the first things I pitched to Clay Wilson, who's one of the editors at Metro, who's incredible, and she was so supportive of me pitching, firstly, as a feature, because not many people knew that this policy existed. And in a cost-of-living crisis where people are relying on places like food banks more and more... The fact that this policy existed and formula costs were going up and up, it meant that it was just taking such a toll on so many people. I firstly pitched the feature and that was written in March and then on the back of that I worked with the charity Feed. They gave me some comments for the feature and I stayed in contact with Erin Williams who's the co-founder of Feed and I said to her and Clay I really wanted to do a, a campaign to try and get this to be overturned and Everyone was in agreement and we came up with the formula for change and it went live, I think, two or three weeks ago now. And our petition is over 35,000, I believe. It's been going up quite steadily. Yeah, and we're really confident. We're really, really, really overwhelmed by the response. But to answer your second question about why isn't formula, this is, there's quite a complex history, but I'll keep it short, that essentially it comes from the World Health Organization and UNICEF and there's like a code that was in place I think if you look back, you can see sort of early codes that are around 1981, essentially coming into practice because they wanted to encourage breastfeeding. There were declining rates in the West, and they also wanted to stop what they believed to be irresponsible promotion from formula companies or any breastfeeding substitutes. So I think they felt at the time that promoting formula was a disservice to breastfeeding, essentially, and was probably the reason why the rates of breastfeeding in the West were declining. So that has kind of been the issue. The policy aim is to support and also protect breastfeeding. But to my mind, it's not doing that. Breastfeeding rates haven't seen a huge rise. And feed have done incredible studies and research to show that the removal of promotion of formula doesn't encourage them to breastfeed more. There's so many reasons why women can't breastfeed or choose not to breastfeed. And it's not because formula's on the shelf and it's at a discount. You know, there's it's a lot more complex than that. So that's the reason it came into effect. And I think the reason we've had such a good response to the campaign is because a lot of people can see this policy isn't serving what it intended to do.
0: We are currently already living in a cost of living crisis without factoring in the huge costs of childcare. So Mm -hmm. for mothers like yourself who either choose or are forced to formula feed for a myriad of reasons, Mm -hmm. how does this add to the financial anxiety in your mental health when you can't access these discounts for it?
1: Yeah, so I think the issue with this policy, to me, in my opinion, is twofold. I think it's financial implications. So just to give you an idea, one of the mums I spoke to who was relying on a baby bank and a food bank she had twins and the cheapest or one of the cheaper formulas was cow and gate which is 10 pounds a tub her twins on a normal week were going through two so that's 20 pounds a week and when they were cluster feeding or they were going through a growth spurt which any mum can tell you happens quite often they were sometimes going through two each so that's 40 pounds she was spending a week there's no way to buy this in bulk and get that cheaper You can't use your loyalty card points. You can't use your net card points. You can't get it cheaper on Amazon. And in some cases, you can't even use the vouchers and gift cards you're getting from food banks to purchase this. And in our campaign, one of the things that UNICEF, because they did reply to us, we did go to them about this. They're really keen for what's called healthy start vouchers to be increased. Currently, a healthy start voucher is £8.50. So that doesn't even cover the cost of a single tub in the UK. So £8.50 is not really going to help when a single mother on universal credit is having to spend £40 a week to feed her children. And so that's why we're seeing unsafe practices becoming more common of people watering formula down, or mums going to extreme lengths such as surviving on one meal a day, And also, I would say to that, if you're surviving on one meal a day, it's very, very unlikely that you're going to be able to breastfeed because you don't have the the sufficient amount of calories in your system to produce the milk. So when people say breastfeeding is free, it's actually not because a woman needs to be consuming enough calories to breastfeed. So if you're living in poverty with a rising cost of groceries, breastfeeding isn't free because you need to eat a certain amount. And where are you getting this food from? So it's a complex issue and I would say the other side of it not just financial implications there's a real emotional toll I've spoken to a lot of mums who formula fed that suffered a lot of trauma because of it not because of the formula feeding but because of the public reaction because I think of the stigma that exists around formula and I think the narrative that women only formula feed when they have failed to breastfeed and I think the word failed is quite key here in air
0: quotes yeah
1: Yeah, because it's not a failure. There's a lot of reasons why women can't breastfeed, very valid reasons. And even if you choose not to, it's not a failure. Breast milk is incredible. No one is denying that. This campaign is not denying that. But formula milk in this country is heavily regulated. So whatever is on your supermarket shelves has been scrupulously tested and reviewed. It's perfectly balanced, nutritious, and healthy for your baby. It's not a mystery box. People know exactly what's in there. And I think that policies like this, in my opinion only serve to punish formula feeding mums more not only financially but I think the stigma and I think it continues to perpetuate that notion that formula is the unsafe choice or it's the you know the failure option or it's it's irresponsible feeding because when you think about some of the other products that are exempt from loyalty points We're talking scrap charts, tobacco. It's things that you probably wouldn't say are good for you. And so they have to be...
0: Contraband previously. Yeah, (laughs) they
1: have to be consumed in moderation. And to have formula in that category, whilst no one is saying that, you can understand when a mum's feeling vulnerable and Mm. she is already feeling as though she's failed to feed her child in the appropriate way, to then have formula kind of in that line, that category... course it's going to make a mum feel like she's not doing the right thing by her child and I think it does and that's got to stop as well. So as I say this campaign and this policy for me it's twofold. It's financial implications but I think it's also emotional implications. It's high time that we realise that we can promote breastfeeding and protect the practice of breastfeeding without punishing formula feeding mums which is what I believe this policy is doing.
0: This country is already a pretty antenatalist environment at the best of times. Cat, you've got high inflation, high interest rates, rising food costs, mm-hmm. a housing crisis, expensive childcare, and minimum with paternity leave for young fathers as well. When you add this into the mix, it doesn't make motherhood a very appealing choice for a lot of women who might be on the fence, is it? No,
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, motherhood's regarded. I think motherhood is tough no matter what your kind of like social situation, definitely. Because I love my son's pieces, but it's really hard. And factoring in the financial implications, I mean, childcare, I I mean, we could do a whole separate podcast Mm. on childcare because it is ridiculous. So yeah, it's really tough. As you said, one of the key things is the minimum amount of time that paternity leave I mean, my partner got six weeks and that was seen as some kind of miracle.
0: Out oh, of like, the ordinary for that, isn't it? <laughs>
1: but, you know, I, I don't know how I would have craved without him for six weeks. And it was really hard for him to go back to work for me because six weeks is nothing. A six-week-old baby is still feeding around the clock, probably not sleeping very well. It's just, yeah, it's really, really, really tough. And I think adding into all, as you said, all the rising costs that we're already dealing with, Another thing that's really worth noting is with this policy, formula prices are rising substantially. I mean, there was a report from from Sky News that said that the cheapest had gone up 44% in the last two years.
0: Wow. So,
1: you know, one of the criticisms that, you know, some people have said with this campaign, i have read some of the comments on some of the articles, which I know you should never do, but still... They're saying, well, why not do this or why not tackle this? The reality is this campaign isn't going to solve everything. It's not a one size fits all. This is one area that we saw was an obvious area to target Mm. because it's a government policy. It's not going to cost the government any money to overturn it. It's essentially going to give retailers green light to do something that they're probably happy to do because it's offering their customers more options for buying a product that they have on their shelves. But of course, there's so much more we can do and there's so much more that needs to be done it's really tough it's really tough time for mums and everyone out there
0: right now outside of the very glaring issue which doesn't seem to have ever been tackled yet about paternity leave for fathers as you rightly pointed out to me as well when we chatted off air cat this issue doesn't just affect mothers it affects dads too especially if they are the primary carer just explain Mm. that angle the reasons why they could be the primary carer and how it impacts men's mental health too
1: yeah, so when I was talking with a lot of food banks and baby banks for my original feature, but also for this campaign, something that they pointed out to me that I didn't even sort of take into consideration is situations when the father's are left to be the primary carer. So that can be because the mum has been hospitalized, potentially with mental health issues, physical health issues. There may be situations when the mum is just not around. You know, there were situations where there was a family that one of the food banks I was talking to or working with and, and the mum was in prison. And there were other situations where the grandparents became the primary carers. So obviously, in those situations, breastfeeding isn't possible. I mean, there was another situation where a mother had gone into psychosis and was hospitalized for her safety, of course. So the father was left as the primary carer. Therefore, he wasn't working, which he was expecting to do. So his salary wasn't coming in. And of course, he was going to have to formula feed because he couldn't produce breast milk. But that combined with the fact that he was suddenly off work and not receiving a salary meant that formula was almost impossible for him to budget for. And yeah, he was basically in a desperate way needing Mm. to feed his baby. So when we talk about feeding being a women's issue, I would argue that especially formula is a family issue. and, And in a lot of situations, really does affect the fathers because in those situations where they are part of the feeding journey like that, they're going to be filling the cost of formula. And it is important to acknowledge that there are situations where the fathers are the primary carer. Also, let's look at same-sex couples. If they adopt whatever route they choose to become a family, biologically, they can't breastfeed. And so, you know, this is almost someone could argue it's quite punishing towards that because, you know, if the absence of a mother, how is there any possible way for a family to breastfeed? So yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, it's an issue that I think affects everyone. And uh, I think it's something that we need to be making noise about in loads of different social circles, not just around mothers. Mm.
0: Despite the fact this is obviously uh, an issue which is deserving of change and you've done a lot mm-hmm. of work on it. Do you ever worry or have worried about the blurring of lines between your journalism work and this which kind of falls into more activist work?
1: I definitely had some concerns about writing about formula because I knew that it was quite a contentious issue. I knew that there were some people who were very, I was warned that I was probably going to get backlash because it's a very controversial issue for some people. And some people are very sensitive about anything that they deem to be an attack on breastfeeding. But as a mother and as some, I mean, as soon as I worked with food banks and baby banks and spoke to mothers who were in terrible situations I didn't care to be honest with you I thought if any publication has an issue with me trying to do something that is going to help mothers and ultimately my sole aim is to try and help people feed their children If you have a problem with that, and that kind of, you know, affects how you view me as a journalist, then I'm not sure that your opinion is something that I I care about anymore. And maybe you're not a publication I want to work with. Another thing I spoke about earlier with wanting to do more journalism or wanting to write more about things that really affected me, but also I was really passionate about after having my son This is something I really care about. And yeah, I haven't received a ton of backlash. I'm not getting like, you know, loads of DMs from people telling me to sod off. But I don't care if I do, because I think the cause is, is important enough and warrants it. So I, yeah, willing to take any backlash. But I've been very lucky so far to not have any.
0: And as a final question before we move on, what has this journalism journey taught you about yourself?
1: I think it, oh gosh. I was very ballsy in my 20s. That's what it taught me. When I look back at some of the things I did and some of the interviews I had and some of the situations I found myself in, I think I was a lot ballsier than I realised. I'm proud of the determination I had to get my foot in the door and, and move up and work in this. One thing I would say, I've never compromised on the person I am. I've never sold anyone down the river. I still have very good friends in journalism that I've had the whole time. I'm never willing to be a bad person compromise who I am and I suppose there were times in my career where I would have seen that as a bit of a weakness maybe I'm too nice maybe I should be a little bit more out for myself but yeah I'm glad I never was I don't care if that if some people think that means that I'm not tough enough as a journalist I'm glad to still have all the friends that I had originally and have good relationships with people PRs and people in general so Yeah, I'm ballsy and I was determined, but I don't think I, looking back, there's anything I ever did that I regret or I think was totally out of character for me.
0: We talked all about Kat the journalist. I want to go a bit deeper now and talk about your own mental health journey, Kat. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Take me back to early life, teenagers. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the cat we meet here?
1: I had a really happy childhood. Well, as happy as teen life can be, I think. I think hormones aside, like I was happy. Always had a lot of friends, stable family life, all of that kind of stuff. But I would say I've always battled anxiety. And I can trace that back to my childhood, and I remember having therapy for anxiety in my 20s and a therapist saying to me, did anything happen to cause that? And to be honest with you, nothing. I think it was a learnt behaviour from my parents because my parents are quite anxious people. But, you know, I can remember like lying in bed at maybe eight years old, consumed by a project that I had due for school the next day and unable to sleep. So that kind of anxious thought an obsession over an anxious thought and the kind of catastrophizing I can remember existing within me as a child and as I said it didn't stem from a traumatic event I think I just learned that behavior from my family that was one thing <laughs> I wish I'd been less anxious as a child.
0: The main part of your mental journey we're going to talk about Cat, is what stems from your desire to lead the formula for change campaign which was Mm -hmm. your own difficulty in breastfeeding your first child as a new mum so Mm. what did that reality look like and how did it impact your mental health
1: yeah I wanted to breastfeed my son and that was the discussion I'd had with my antenatal group I was open to formula if breastfeeding didn't work for me but I definitely had an idea that like it would be easier and that maybe someone would be there to help me and I had a really bad labour experience. I was in the hospital for about a week before I even had my son. It was just a long, drawn-out process. I was physically exhausted. I'd had gestational diabetes, which restricts your diet in pregnancy. And annoyingly, the hospital didn't provide any food that fit my diet. So aside from my partner going out and getting me food, I wasn't eating. So I actually lost weight in the week I was in the hospital getting ready to have my son and I lost weight during pregnancy to be honest with you when I went into hospital at nine months to have my son I was only six pounds heavier and that included my son's weight and all the other things that were in me so I was you know and I'm not a big person I was size eight before I had my son so I didn't have a ton of weight to lose I was depleted I would say if you look at any picture of me in the hospital I look gaunt there's nothing behind my eyes I'm completely a shell of myself I went through a lot of like induction and trying to have my son naturally. So trying to induce natural labour, which in the end didn't work. And then having an emergency C-section, which is quite traumatic. You know, suddenly you'll rush to surgery and you'll slice seven layers open awake. And, you know, and then given this baby and I just remember having this baby and someone just sort of encouraging me to breastfeed. I had cannulas on both hands. I had a huge wound on my stomach and I just remember feeling so out of my body I was in so much pain then the breastfeeding hurt and it didn't seem to be doing anything and I suppose looking back now I probably wasn't producing a lot of milk because I didn't have anything in me like nothing I was so tired and sleep deprived and starving so that continued back home I also started to feel really low and really anxious and I would say that that was not baby blues I do feel that was more postnatal depression because it was a real darkness that washed over me like nothing I'd ever felt before and breastfeeding for me was very triggering because I was topping up my son's feeds with bottles formula bottles and that felt really easy because he took to the bottle really well My partner could help. My mum was staying with us. She could help. When I was trying to breastfeed, it was just agonizing because it hurt me. And also he was screaming because I don't think he was getting the same flow that he was getting from the bottle. And a baby's cry is meant to be anxiety inducing for mums. It's, you know, evolutionary. We're meant to have a reaction to it. But when you're suffering already and you're really low, it's just incredibly triggering. And I found the whole thing mentally exhausting so when my son was about three weeks old I decided to myself sod it I'm going to do formula feeding I'm sick of this it's just making me feel more depressed and I was very fortunate to have a health visitor who came to the house took one look at me and was like yeah you need to do what's right for you because I should also add that I lost more weight after my son was born so I really was yeah like I just wasn't really myself and I don't think there was a physical way I could have breastfed my son at that point. And I think just anything to kind of get me feeling myself or feeling like I could eat again. So as soon as I started formally feeding my son, as with anyone who's battled anxiety can tell you, once you feel in control of one thing, everything else you feel you can accomplish a bit more. And with motherhood, everything feels out of control because it's all new. But if there's one thing that you can feel like you're nailing, which for me was formula feeding because it was easy. It was a bottle. I gave it to my son. He drank it. Done. Like it wasn't a worry about whether he was latching or whether he was getting enough. Once that I made that decision for me mentally, other things started to feel possible and like I was able to tackle them. So it's a personal thing. But for me, breastfeeding really wasn't the right choice for me. And formula really did save me. And I think it changed my whole motherhood journey.
0: Being a mother is one of the most feminine things I imagine you can do in life. I'm sure the feelings for many women is completely indescribable and one I will never be able to fully understand as much as I can try. However, given the the issues that you had, Kat, Mm. does it invalidate you as a mother or make you feel like you're not good enough to be one when you have these issues?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, the first thing I would say is I didn't love my son as soon as I met him. That's complete false for me. I didn't have that rush of love when I first saw him. I mean, I remember they just kind of like shoved his face in front of mine after he'd been pulled out of me. And I remember looking at his eyes, I can see his face even now clear as day. And all I felt was, oh my God, now I have to look after this baby. I mean, my friend sent me this meme and it's the truest thing. It's a woman leaving hospital in a wheelchair with her baby and being dumped off the side of a cliff. And that's what it feels like because you go through pregnancy and if you're lucky, pregnancy is relatively problem-free. Mine wasn't. I had a ton of issues in pregnancy. Then you go through labor, which is traumatic. It doesn't matter how good your labor experience is. It's really hard. And then you have a newborn baby. So actually you realize the marathon is the baby and everything else, pregnancy, labor, was just the train journey to get there. And you're like, oh, now the challenge starts. Now I've gone through nine months of this, and however many hours of labor, now I have to actually get my ass in gear and start parenting. So that was really hard. I just felt this enormous weight of pressure. And I would say that yeah, the early days of having my son, I remember feeling as if a bomb had gone off in my house and I was just walking around like surveying the wreckage of my home because like nothing looked the same. Every surface was covered in crap. <laughs> like it was just messy house. There was just a screaming constantly from my son, ringing in my ears. Like everything just felt crazy. And of course, that invalidation journey. You you think, what's wrong with me? Like animals instinctively love their babies. This is instinct, and I'm not feeling it. So I must be wrong. Like something's wrong with me. I can't breastfeed my son. So I'm being made to feel as though I've, even though I really feel like formula is right for me I also feel like I failed him already because I should be breastfeeding him and maybe I should have stuck it out and I should have just forced myself to keep going even though it was really really damaging my mental health of course it invalidates it I still feel now I still have those moments where I feel like a terrible mum. like my son took a while to walk he didn't walk until he was about 20 months and just for reference, like a lot of babies walk between like 12 and 18 months. And if they get to 18 months and they've still not walked, that's when they say online to like consult a doctor. And he didn't walk till he was 20 months. And all that was going through my head is this is my fault. This is my fault. I'm a bad mum. That's why he's not walking. I didn't breastfeed him. That's why he's not walking. His bones weren't strong enough. Rubbish. It wasn't true. But of course, that is what happens. So Yeah it's really hard. I think most mums feel like a failure at least once a day at least and it's tough it's tough. I don't know any mum that feels like they're nailing it.
0: You said to me at one point you felt like you couldn't exist that you weren't living. Was that your lowest point?
1: Yeah 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 I remember being really down after having my son and I should say just because I do think it's important for anything I put out in like the public sphere just in case he ever hears this one day like I never, ever wanted any harm. Like, you know, sometimes with postnatal depression, you can feel like you want harm to come to the child or whatever. I never felt that way. Like, I knew my responsibility existed as his mum. I knew that. I took that responsibility seriously as tough as I found it. But, yeah, like, motherhood, especially those early months, is, is existing. Like, you are just getting through each day, and it is so tough. And I felt low. I felt grief over my previous life because that had gone. And it didn't look like all these YouTube influencers. I couldn't get myself together. I could barely get showered. It was just so crazy every day. You're not sleeping. And no one can ever prepare you for how sleep deprivation feels.
0: Mm. Because it's not
1: a night. It's not two nights. It's not three nights. It's months and months of sleep deprivation and sleep interruption, which is really tricky. You finally go down and then you're woken up again. It's just there's a reason. It's torture. And I really did feel like I was just existing. And I remember one of my best friends sending me this clip of weirdly this makeup influencer that we both really liked and she'd done a video about how much she was suffering with postnatal depression. I didn't hear a lot of people talking about it. I heard loads of people talking about the love bubble they were in so it was really refreshing to see someone talking about it and she said something like it's impossible for me to imagine that anyone that's ever felt this bad could feel good again and I really related to that because in that moment I felt so bad I couldn't imagine ever feeling happy again. I felt awful to say that because I had my beautiful son, but I really couldn't. And yeah, thankfully that did lift. And that was through a combination of support, but also medication, which was invaluable for me and just worked Hmm. wonders.
0: I imagine one of the stigmas when it comes to postnatal depression is that if a mother is mentally ill or mentally unwell to any form of degree, in this early stage of motherhood, they might think, the mother, rationally or irrationally, that if they disclose they are struggling, people will judge them, think they're unfit to be a mum, or, you know, at its most extreme, social services might even take their baby into care. Can you just explain to my listeners how difficult that is for them? And did you feel that in any way at all?
1: Yeah, definitely. I had a great midwife team around me. So I think on day four, I rang the midwife team, and I actually had... The midwife that was in labor with me came to the house. It was a guy called Dylan, Dylan from Lewisham Hospital. If you're ever listening, you're so lovely. And he came and sat with me, and I cried to him for hours. And he had to ask me these questions. So there's like a scale, they have to ask you these questions mm. Do you want to harm yourself, and do you want to harm the baby? And I was so paranoid in that moment. I felt like they were accusing me of something, but it's just the standard questions that they ask anyone. And there's no judgment and they're not trying to like take your baby off you. But in that moment I felt like, well, no, of course I don't want to harm him. Why? What do you think I've done to him? Like looking at him thinking what's wrong with him? Like, why do you think I've harmed? Like, no, you are really paranoid. And funnily enough, some of the things that the mums that I spoke to in the food banks for the feature with formula were saying to me was they were so worried about going on record and admitting that they couldn't afford to feed their child because they thought Mm. their child was going to get taken away from them. So There's so much that's difficult with motherhood, but I think we still have this stigma. We have this narrative of like the hysterical mum, you know, like you're not fit to be a mother. And we just aren't giving mums a safe platform to say, I'm struggling, I'm circling the drain, I need help. Because I think there's still this worry that if they admit they're struggling, then the baby is just not safe in their care which for so many mums is not true. The baby is safest with the mum in so many instances. It's just the mum needs some help. So, yeah, it's it's a theme I see throughout motherhood, people being scared to ask for help because they don't want to seem as though they can't do it. So, mm. yeah, it's really tough. Just
0: building on that, given that the, the strides that have been made in women's mental health for many years, it's why men's mental health is still catching up, to be honest, why do you think an issue like this for women is still shrouded in so much stigma and taboo? I don't
1: know. I, 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 I think I don't want to invalidate any woman's mental health journey, but you've got to understand that when a, a woman is a new mum, she's took so many hormones flowing through her body and that does not help. That really does make you feel very vulnerable and so emotional and justifiably so. But I think despite the fact that we've made so many strides in women's mental health I think we still put completely unrealistic standards on women when it comes to motherhood. You know, women are meant to parent like they have no job and work like they have no children. And women can't complain. You know, there was that segment recently that was on one of the morning shows where we were talking about whether motherhood was boring and women were being shamed for admitting that they don't love motherhood all day, every day. God forbid they say something like that because it seems like they're ungrateful. And it's like, no, it's just we need to be more open and honest as women and admit there are times where motherhood is really frustrating or or just
0: childcare generally. Like, you know, I'd (laughs) love that to babysit my nephews and you know, when they're asking to do the same thing over and over and over again, the monotony is really exhausting as much as you love them.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think you can separate the child from parenting, right? Parenting is the responsibility of keeping the child alive and the child is the child. So like you can, I love my son unconditionally. Do I love being his mum every day? No, sometimes, is really challenging when he wants to run headfirst into the open plug sockets and start poking around at them you know like it's all things like that it's really read the same
0: book 60 million times (laughs) i
1: I think the strides we've made in women's mental health is great but i still think we punish women a lot as mothers for ever admitting that it's hard Mm. or yeah god forbid admitting that they don't always love it because we see that as some sort of slight on their child, or, you know, at least you have children, you know, some people can't, have. To. there's always noise, there's always a punishment about a woman admitting that they're struggling with something. I'm sure the same goes for men too, but definitely with motherhood, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm so tired. Oh, you think you're tired now? Wait until this, you know, or oh, today was really tough. Oh, yeah, but you'll miss those days when they're gone. There's always something that women get as a, as a response that isn't just, I know, it's tough, just do the best you can like I think there's always a backlash to that we still have that noise in society that's like you should be grateful to be a mum motherhood is the most beautiful journey ever embrace it the days are long but the years are short we just hear that all the time and it's like I just think there needs to be more openness that motherhood is hard and some days you might hate it and that's okay it doesn't mean you hate your child (laughs) so it's it's fine to be okay but I think that's the issue I think we just put a ton of pressure on mums
0: biologically you won't have direct experiences but it's just come up as a question now have you ever spoken to any dads about postpartum is that the correct term postpartum depression for them do the symptoms differ in any way for example you know is a symptom of it when dads might get more resentment because of the intense bond that happens between the mum and, well, stereotypically, I should say, there's always exceptions, stereotypically Mm -hmm. between the mum and the child. And obviously the child possibly has like a a more intense connection early on when they're a toddler to the mum than the dad, you know, asking for mum all the time, maybe not dad. Have you talked to any dads about that at all, or, uh, you know, shared any commonalities?
1: I've not had a direct experience of postnatal depression or postpartum. I think, to be with you, the difference in those definitions may be American versus English. I'm not sure. I think we say postnatal. Oh, OK.
0: Is it, not, is it not male to female Then I'm using? OK, maybe I've got that wrong. But yeah, no, no, the, the male version saying, of it, basically.
1: <laughs> that, yes, I've not had any direct experiences. I think some of my antenatal friends, we definitely felt, you know, that there can be a feeling amongst dads that they aren't, I don't know, like it must be hard, like when a baby does just want their mum. I mean, there Mm. have been certain situations or certain time periods in my son's life where he's really preferred his dad for whatever reason, you know, like I'll come in the room and he won't even look up, but dad comes home from work and suddenly he's like running into his arms and it hurts. You think, what, why not me? Like what's going on? So I imagine that in the newborn phase, because, you know, a lot of babies are soothed by their mom or, you know, whatever it may be. I think for my partner, I don't want to talk too much on his sort of mental health journey because that's definitely for him to say, but because I struggled a lot, I think he shouldered a lot of the burdens, and he just kind of had to be strong. Like he could never have any moment of weakness in the early, definitely in the early kind of like six weeks of having our son, you know, he did so many of the feeds, the night feeds, he would take my son out for walks when I just needed to sleep, or I just needed peace and quiet. And Mm -hmm. I remember when he was going back to work, we had a, a walk and he was saying, you know, wow, I'm just feeling this enormity of like pressure and, perhaps then he allowed himself to feel the enormity of the transition after I'd kind of started to feel more myself. and definitely wouldn't say that that was postnatal depression. But yeah, it's tough on dads. And I think it's so tough on mothers that I think sometimes we're in danger of ignoring any kind of issue with dads. And I think mental health, happy mum equals happy baby, but so does happy dad. If we're parenting as a, a two parent household, we have to be considering the mental health of everyone in that so you know I just think that I can imagine saying this as a woman I'm not the most experienced but with so many issues in men's mental health we can laugh it off or brush it off or sweep it under the carpet and tell men to get over themselves or pull themselves together and I hate that narrative it's very damaging so same with postnatal depression yes they haven't had the baby they haven't birthed the baby but that doesn't mean the transition is still overwhelming. The transition to parenthood is overwhelming, and whether you're the mother or the father, like I don't think that you can neglect that being a tough time mentally for a yeah. father. There's no it
0: monopoly is. on it, is there? Yeah.
1: No. Well, you're still probably in the bedroom with the baby while the night feeds are taking place. Just you know, your life never looks the same. And it happens overnight, you know. It's it, I can imagine it is really hard transition. They don't have the hormones going through them like the mums. I mean, there may be someone out there
0: as much, yeah. <laughs>
1: as the, uh, I'm, I'm sure, there's someone out there that knows far more than me that may say there are some hormones for fathers. I don't know, but you know, they haven't got the rush that comes after you give birth. Yes, of course. But yes, of course, it's overwhelming. And yeah, I mean, my partner didn't suffer like that, but I I know that he definitely felt the weight of the transition after I started to feel a little bit more like myself, perhaps he gave himself permission to be like, Oh my God, we've had a baby Mm. now. It's tough.
0: Yeah. And I I think there is that natural, almost evolutionary tendency for men when people in their lives go through traumatic events. You know, I've spoken to a lot of men who, when they've had people in their family die, they will have this natural urge to put on a stronger face for, The other people in their family, so they can support them and they can rely on them. And it's obviously great, and it's something that I love about men. And I'm so glad that I've had these conversations on the podcast. But despite the natural urge to do that, you then do put a lot of pressure on yourself as well. Because then you feel like, well, I can't let myself grieve publicly to them because they might then take that from me and feel worse. Do you know what I mean? I think it is hard for dads, and I think it's hard for men generally in that position because we do want to be responsible, we do want to feel that masculine urge to you know protect you know I don't want to get cancelled for saying this but that is true but then at the same time it does make us feel more pressure internally not to be able to kind of express the way we might want to as well
1: yeah and I'd always argue as a woman who's in a relationship with a man I think women can always tell when their partner is holding something (laughs) in or bottling it up I mean we call women more emotional which I always think is ridiculous because I think men aren't less emotional I think in some situations, they're perhaps not it's sure different. how to express it's different. the yeah. yeah, like, I mean, yeah. I think sometimes men have been taught to be emotionless or devoid of emotion, which is worse because showing emotion isn't always a negative thing that's what I'm trying to say being emotional we always classify as a, a weak trait and actually I think showing emotion can be really strong and also it's very helpful for our mental health so yeah I think I think definitely in parenthood as a woman and as a mum who's co-parenting with a with a man I can always tell when my partner's struggling or something on it is on his mind even if he thinks he's bottling up he's not so it's always healthier to let these things out for sure but yeah I do agree with what you're saying like The mum has been through so much through pregnancy and labour. So, of course, you would think to yourself, how can I possibly admit I'm struggling in this moment? And then, of course, shouldering that burden must take a toll.
0: And then you validate yourself and, you know, you think, oh, what am I complaining about? You know, I
1: haven't been able to have the baby. I haven't been able to carry the baby. I haven't been able to birth the baby. So the least I can do is be the strong one. And then you Mm. think, God, what's... But yeah, of course. As I said, there's so much. It is an absolute emotional smack across the face when you have a baby because it's wonderful in so many ways, and it's overwhelming and exhausting, mm. and tra- it can be traumatic. It can be because mm. it's just, your whole life looks so different, and it's the most life changing thing, and it's life changing in every aspect. It's not life changing like a song you hear or a book you read it literally no part of your life looks the same and how can anyone go through that and not feel something not feel a bit affected by it you know
0: let's reflect on your mental health journey now so a what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to the cat who was struggling with her anxiety and those late night projects the next day or the cat who was working late nights as well competing with other journalists to land those celebrity stories or the cat who was really struggling to latch to her baby and perhaps questioning her ability to be a mum irrationally of course Mm -hmm. what would you say to her knowing what you do now
1: god i mean it does get better i think that's like a cliche but it does i always see these videos of old people saying they wish they could tell their younger selves not to stress as much And I would tell my younger self not to stress as much. And yet now as a, I mean, I don't know whether I classify as a young person at 35, but I still find myself stressing. And then I think, God, I'm sure 10 years from now, I'm going to say don't stress. I think it's so hard as a person when you're in the moment to not think Mm. that it's forever. Something motherhood has taught me is everything is temporary. It is temporary. Every hard phase will pass. And it's a tough, experience to go through because it teaches you that in the most extreme way because you'll be like the tough phase will be sleep deprivation or constant crying for hours on end which is torturous but it passes and it'll go and so when when it goes and it lifts and you go okay that was temporary then when you face it again you know it's just a case of buckling down and getting through and that's been really good for other tough times I mean I haven't really gone through anything touch wood too tough since having my son but you know, a stressful week at work, whatever, you know, this is temporary, this is temporary. Say that to yourself, this is temporary, this will pass. I wish I maybe applied that when I was younger, of course, because I <laughs> definitely would have had more fun and less stress. Hindsight's yeah.
0: a wonderful thing, eh, hey, Kat? Oh, God, a wonderful I wish really I...
1: I mean, if I was in my 20s again, I would just go on so many more holidays. Don't worry about money, like, you'll make more money. Do you know what I mean? Like, things that you just worry about so much and you think, oh, I wish i just... Go on the holiday with your mates, you know, stay out or go out, work, drinks, whatever it is. Like, just have fun. Like, time is fleeting and, you know, you'll never regret a good time you had. You'll never regret an amazing holiday and memories are invaluable. Everything else is replaceable or can be had again. You know, you can, as I said, you can make more money. I hope that doesn't sound like a really overly privileged thing to say. I'm I'm not saying get yourself into debt. What I'm saying is, you know, just take the risks and do things that bring you joy. Like, don't worry so much about everything else because it will figure itself out, I think. As long as you've got a good head on your shoulders, with motherhood, I always say, as long as you're leading with love, which sounds really cliche and American, but as long as you're trying to lead with love and you love your child and showing your child everyday love, doesn't matter if you make some mistakes along the way because I think love is the most important thing. And with life, as long as you've got a good head on your shoulders, you're not going into crazy debt, you're not living recklessly... You're probably gonna be okay you're gonna be fine just you know give yourself a break but i'm gonna be telling myself this 10 years from now so you know i'm not sure either i've definitely found that balance but there we go
0: we've come to our final topic of conversation cat and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests if we have time it is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health so firstly mm. how is your mental health
1: very good. Yeah. I wouldn't say that it's always perfect, but I've got good tools. I'm not on medication anymore. After I had my son, I was on medication, but I'm happy off medication right now. And I have days where I still struggle with anxiety. It's who I am, I think. But I can go to that point and bring myself away from it much quicker than I used to be able to. So I've got the tools to deal with it. So I'd say, on the whole, it's good.
0: And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind?
1: Uh, Probably when I was about 25, 26 and I went to a doctor and they diagnosed me as having anxiety and said I could have therapy or medication. And I was like, wow, okay, so this is actually not necessarily just me being pathetic or immature or anything else that I think people with anxiety have told themselves this is actually something that's out of my control that I could get help for so that was the first time I kind of acknowledged it like that.
0: And can you remember the first conversation you have with someone about your mental health outside of that doctor so who was it with what did you say and how do you look back on it did it feel like a big moment or big burden or weight have been lifted off your shoulders or in the other something quite easy insignificant and normal to do?
1: I can't quite think I definitely know my mum always pressured me to go to a doctor because my mum saw a lot of herself maybe in me with anxiety and wanted me to have tools to help myself and things like that I don't know I I think one of the best conversations I've had with anxiety is slowly realizing people in my life that have it or people that have gone on medication I think people are becoming they feel more empowered to say that they need help so people have I wouldn't say come out of the woodwork because that seems like it's a negative, but people I went to university with, for example, people I've known my whole life who I have a certain opinion of, you know, I, I didn't ever realize they struggled. We've had conversations and they say, yeah, I feel that way too. I was on that medication or I had therapy for that. And you say, Wow you feel so much less alone and also you realize how stupid it is to be keeping this to yourself like some sort of dirty secret which it's not Mm. I'm sorry I can't pinpoint one specific but I think just in recent years definitely I've seen so many of my friends it's just a topic of conversation which is great it's just like talking about the weather like how are you feeling I'm feeling rubbish because of this so much more so much easier to talk about now I think and I'm talking of some of the friends I'm talking about are men and that's been so refreshing to have them feel so comfortable to open up about it and also knowing that knowing they're opening up with each other because maybe that wasn't the case 10-15 years ago with with the same friends so that's really good.
0: What things in life do you find that trigger your mental health so it could be things people say to you a sound being in a particular social environment or have you not figured all of them out yet?
1: so my son crying <laughs> is the biggest thing
0: <laughs> well, that's an obvious it's one yeah
1: <laughs> physiological so it's hard to get away from i have never ever ever liked people saying to me i don't like to leave things to the last minute but say that's something that really triggers my anxiety am i gonna have enough time to do everything i need to do i hate it when people it triggers my anxiety more and people go well why the hell did you leave it to the last minute then you know like stupid things that don't help or if people make guilt tripping yeah stupid like I've had a bad day something's happened and I'll go classic cat what are you like and you think well that doesn't help like what you're saying I hate that I do like a drink but I have to say hangovers don't help anxiety so I try not to drink to excess but it's hard sometimes when the wine (laughs) tastes very good but yeah definitely I, I know in myself like the nine months I was pregnant I didn't drink obviously you go wow like this is actually pretty good not drinking And then I started drinking after I had my son, just because obviously sometimes you need that glass of wine. But I would say alcohol, for sure, is a trigger.
0: And then conversely, what positive tools do you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't?
1: Getting outside is invaluable. Mm. It's my favourite when I was on maternity leave, because when babies are young, you can just whack them in a pram, go out with them. They probably fall asleep in the pram. It was just great. It's like everyone always says, like, nature, the colour green is just, like, so soothing and relaxing. So getting outside, whatever weather, I would go out with my son in the snow, in the torrential rain. I just love being outside. I hate being cooped up. So fresh air. And sometimes distraction. If nothing else is going to help my anxiety, if I'm not going to be able to rationalise my my thoughts, if I'm not going to be able to talk myself down from the ledge crappy reality TV, does wonders, below deck, Kardashians. Oh, God. Yeah, but it works. Like, just distract. Just put something on that's dramatic in a different way and doesn't affect you at all. You know, something that is, like, very harmless. I can't watch something that's, like, chaotic in a way that's going to make me feel sad or whatever. But if I'm watching two people having a fight on Real Housewives of New York, it's hilarious, and I'm not thinking about What's the real
0: estate one? What's the real estate one? Is it Selling selling Sunset sunset or something like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've heard that's
0: chaos.
1: (laughs) You know, people say like, oh, I hate watching people argue. I I don't care if I'm not involved. It's great. Like if it's not my drama, then I'm not focusing on my drama. You know, so I, I love watching all of that. I've written about, I actually wrote an article about how good reality TV can be for anxiety. And I had experts like weigh in and agree with me. Depends on what the reality TV is and depends on the type of person you are. But sometimes watching something that is solely focused on someone else's drama that is so out of touch with your reality is good because it's just a complete distraction. You're not going to think about your own it? Stuff. Yeah. Of course, it's just escapism, exactly. So distract, distract, distract. Just find something else to disfocus your mind and then hopefully by the time you think about the thing again you'll have gotten to a better place with it.
0: Which Real Housewives was the origin of that meme where the woman's like shouting at something and then the next pain <laughs> the is a cat? cat.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i think that's beverly hills i have to admit i've only started watching the real housewives of beverly hills i've never watched any other franchise before but one of my friends who's really obsessed with reality tv2 could not believe that i'd not watched it but there's so much out there now and it seems stressful oh my Stress
0: god to it's too much
1: some of it the is only strange. one that
0: i ever watched was atlanta when i was in uni real housewives of atlanta was the one
1: Nene
0: was nana was I've the one.
1: Oh, i love i've seen loads of tiktoks about that I have to admit, like, Below Deck, my partner and I are watching now. And it's, like, after our son's gone to bed, we'll do a couple of it. And I love it because I love the fact that, like, every charter on this boat, they get these, like, horrible guests that are just the worst people. So it's actually good reality TV. It's not just the same people every episode. It's, like, different guests they get on board every mm. episode. That, for me, right now is, like, my evening entertainment is Below Deck.
0: There's one I saw that was basically about, like, Gangster Wives. In America, oh. I can't remember what they—I can't remember what that one was. It was they were all like Italian American, and they were all the wives are just absolutely Mob on crud. Wives. Yeah, that's the one. Mob wives. What the stupidest program ever. Just men snitching on themselves. <laughs> And then there was one that was, like, the darkest thing I've ever seen, which was, like, Milf Manor. And I was like, I never want to watch that ever.
1: Oh, God, no. Yeah, I mean, don't watch some that. Of the, some of the classics, like, in lockdown, my partner and I, luckily, he's a big... Well, I say he's a big reality TV fan. He likes that. <laughs> you <movies>. forced him. <laughs> forced him. We re-watched Maiden Chelsea. And actually, when it was good, it was bloody great. Like, Oh, it, it was,
0: was good, yeah.
1: Was good When it was, like, Spencer and all of the love dramas. We were watching yep. it, like, so good this is great hugo
0: hugo and um, millie let me raise a toast to yeah. my best friend oh iconic
1: it was great it's all on e4 or 4 ad or it's not called 4 ad but i refuse to call it what it's called now um no one does but yeah, so you definitely like if anyone out there wants a good reality binge i would highly recommend going back and watching Made in chelsea it's a classic
0: What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. And if you can't think of a book, album, play, film, any piece of popular culture.
1: Well, there is like the book that one of my friends gave me called Fuck It. It's just called fuck it. I I thought you were going to say
0: the a lot of not giving a fuck. That's come up loads, but this is a different word with fuck in the title. I might
1: need to just quickly Google it. I think it's just called fuck it. Or maybe, yeah, fuck it, the ultimate spiritual way. And it's basically like learning to let go. And I haven't read it in years now. But one thing I think has helped me as a person, I used to be very confrontational. I used to be really like with my friends, like I used to like to get involved in their business My best friend, Lauren, will definitely attest to this. I used to really like wade in and give her my opinion, even if it was not asked for. I'm not like that at all now. I'm not a confrontational person. I'm not a weak person. I don't sit on the fence, but I just pick my battles. I was going to say,
0: that was the word I was going to use, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've learned to pick my battles, which has been great for my mental health. I think if you get involved in people's business too much, you're taking their drama to bed with you and it's just not worth it. Like Mm. The only thing you should be worrying about at night, if anything, is your own stuff, not other people's. And so I pick my battles and I focus a lot on intent. If someone meant to hurt me, if someone meant to, do you know what I mean? So like, mm. I don't try and focus and obsess on something someone said. If I can think, do they really mean to hurt my feelings? Probably not. Is it worth the conversation? Maybe not this time. Let it go. Fuck it, essentially. And that's kind of like the principles from that book. And that helped a certain aspects of my anxiety or something that definitely triggered my anxiety, was that kind of past need to like get involved and finding myself in the center of drama that was just completely unnecessary so now I'm very chilled with drama it's not my vibe only reality scripted drama
0: why is everyone up in my grill <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah if
0: there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why oh
1: my god well, that isn't the mantra by the way <laughs>
0: <laughs> why, is um, <laughs> why is that up in my grill
1: um such a cliche but like take each day as it comes and it's two shall pass like that is it like I just hold on to that in the hard times hard times are temporary and good times will come again and then during good times you know that bad times are coming it's, it's just a complete up and down I was gonna say one of my favorite things that my dad always said to me but I don't know if it's a mental health thing but whenever I was feeling insecure or I was feeling less than my dad always said to me at the end of the day, everybody goes for a shit on the toilet. And like basically he used to say that to me when I first started working in journalism and a lot of people were very like posh or whatever, well to do, and I felt a bit intimidated or like whatever it may be, you know. At the end of the day they still go for a shit on the toilet. And I try and remember that everyone's the same, you know? So if you're ever feeling made to feel lesser than I'm not saying picture them on the toilet, but I'm just saying they do have to do it. Hey, if it
0: helps, it helps.
1: Yeah, so my dad, that was his infinite words of wisdom, six for me.
0: That's really good, actually. What do you love about yourself?
1: Oh, so hard to choose just one. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, the
0: best answer I've had on this question so far.
1: I think I'm decent company. Like, I I think I'm all right to be around. Like, I think actually something journalism really taught me was how to really hold a conversation. It's why, like, in my single days, I always (laughs) always have these, like, terrible dates. But the guy would think it was amazing because... (laughs) I had just not stopped talking. I'd basically interviewed them because they weren't giving me anything. And so they'd come away from it thinking, we have the most amazing chemistry. Like, we just chat, chat, chat. And it was like, no, it was just chat, chat on my side. So that, like I That,
0: that I was, works both ways. Sometimes I've done that and I'm like, oh, this has gone great because the person yeah. on the other end has been really dry. And I've had to carry the conversation and the whole time. It, and
1: you've carried it beautifully because of what you do. So you're used to it. And then mm. they think they've got amazing chemistry because there was like no awkward silences, and you're like, yeah, there was no awkward silences because I wasn't letting there be one. But I think I'm, I think I'm an okay company. Like I think I'm, I'm not very drama filled. I like to just kind of, I'm a pretty chilled friend. I like to think that I'm good, good company. I like to think of a nice person, you know, um, yeah. That's a good I'm answer. I think British that.
0: people aren't good at this question, so I'm trying to get more people to sort no, of No,
1: I, I find themselves. it really hard to like say what it's like that horrible thing in an interview and they're like, What are your best assets? And you're like, Oh, I sound like such quote an Noted yeah. down
0: scripted answer for this yeah. one.
1: <laughs> Real team player.
0: <laughs> yeah. Really hard working, strong <laughs> yeah, epic. I don't
1: yeah. like about myself. I'm alright.
0: <laughs> I got asked what Marvel superhero you'd be once in a job interview. I was like the oh, I'm gonna i don't that.
1: even know what marvel superheroes what are marvel superheroes like
0: which one's oh like up? the hulk iron man captain america wonder
1: woman sort
0: of. she marvel she's dc but yeah superhero yeah, question
1: i'd have failed that job interview right away <laughs>
0: <laughs> as a final question this is another broad one what hmm. more do you think we have to do cat to ensure people from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if, most importantly, they want to do it?
1: I think, I can't say we need to wait for the boomer generation to die out, but essentially, I think the generational curse needs to be broken. I have noticed this more with men, in that maybe their dads or their granddads didn't talk about their mental health, and so maybe it's a newer experience, and perhaps, this is a generalisation, so I know this won't be a one-size-fits-all. I think the old fashioned narrative of mental health is snowflake and it's weak to talk about your mental health. I think we're changing it. I still don't think it's gone. I still think that even my dad might roll his eyes at the idea of younger men sitting down and talking about feelings. He's not trying to be mean, but it's just not something he ever did. Do you know what I mean? So Mm. I think we need to just continue the work to kind of talk about mental health. And talk about mental health as a normal conversation like this. I remember in my early 20s, like Frankie from the Saturdays going into rehab for depression. It was just the most insane news ever because no one talked about depression. And this was in 2011. This is not that long ago. No one talked about depression unless you were like the narrative or like the cliche that existed around people suffering from depression was that they were like unhinged that they were like a danger to society themselves. Terrible, terrible connotations that came from it. And so I remember that being the first thing. So now we are moving towards a place where I think people can admit they have depression or anxiety. We're getting to a stage where people are quite open about their mental health and talking about it because it doesn't necessarily affect how people view them. Whereas it used to. And as long as we keep moving forward and showing examples of anxiety or depression or mental health in general journeys and showing people can be like, we said, when we were talking off camera about, you can be really functioning with a mental health issue. Of course. It doesn't mean that that's always good because sometimes the functioning is you putting on a front, but having anxiety doesn't make you a bad partner having anxiety doesn't make you a bad friend it doesn't necessarily make you a bad colleague and I think maybe some people fear that that's what people are going to assume that they're not going to be a good partner or a good friend or a good colleague because they're dealing with mental health issues we need to break this thing as well like not only is it okay to talk about mental health but also mental health we all have mental health journeys and it exists within all of us and we're all going to have time where our mental health is more affected or less affected and There are some times where it's debilitating, but there are a lot of situations where it's just something that we need to learn the tools for to go about every day. So I hope we go through that. And as I said, I'm a mum. I've got a just shy of being two-year-old. And I'm really conscious of the way I talk about his feelings and his emotions. And I hope his generation, it's going to be so much more open to discuss that yeah, because it's like people say, oh, you know, 20 years ago, no one was talking about depression and mental health or anxiety as if it didn't exist. It obviously existed and it affected people far deeper and people were suffering in silence. So, you know, this idea that just because people didn't talk about it as much, it didn't exist is ridiculous. I think mental health has always been something. And, you know, we're living in hard times. Are you a mm. millennial? Or are you a Gen Z? And
0: despite what these looks might appear, I am millennial. I was born in 1994.
1: But you're like a baby millennial. I'm 88. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm back-end millennial, I would say. Back-end millennial.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, so, like, hopefully the newer generations are becoming more confident talking about it. I think it's almost strange now for someone to say they've never, someone our age or, like, younger, to say they've never, ever suffered with their mental health whereas before I think when I was in my early 20s I never would have said anything like that like, I remember going to therapy at 14 15 because of a few things that had happened and I bumped into someone from school on the bus and I was t- I couldn't think of where to say I was going you know I don't want to tell them I was going I had to, I want to say that I was I did not want them to think I was going to be like in a straitjacket being cut off because that's what we associated back then with going to therapy so I don't even know what excuse I gave <laughs> them but yeah, like, yeah, not ideal.
0: And on that note, Kat, May Romero, thank you very much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me.
1: No, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you.
0: Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Kat for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. I will put links to where you can sign the petition if you want in the show notes and follow Kat on social media as well to find out about its progress. I'll sign us off by saying remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can buy a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show on Friday, September 29th or buy a Vent t-shirt All of those links are on our link tree. That's www.linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent.